Well, welcome to the Hills, all of you watching online around the world, all of you in person at our three campuses. This past week, our governor, Greg Abbott, asked houses of worship to take some time this day to pray about the situation in Ukraine. We're going to do that right now. Would you bow your head, please? I'm going to lead you in that prayer. The first thing I would like you to pray is that the war will end soon. Innocent people suffer most in war, so pray that it will end soon. And now pray for the people of Ukraine that they could have the same right we enjoy, the right to choose their own leaders to govern them and not have leaders forced on them, not of their choosing. Please pray for the church in Ukraine, that the Christians will be protected, that they will be strong in faith and bold in witness. Finally, I think it's very easy to vilify Russian people, most of whom don't know the truth about this conflict, many of whom have been arrested because they spoke out against it. Pray that God will raise up for the Russian people rulers who were good and just. God, you have heard our prayers. Please answer them in ways that reveal your glory to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Some years ago, I was in Huntsville, Alabama, and learned something I did not know. That there's a huge NASA research center there, and consequently, that city has a higher population of engineers and scientists than most cities do. So I read with delight, a story written by one of those engineers that works for NASA. He had gone to a drive through restaurant, placed a small order. It was $4.29, and the young girl on the loudspeaker said, that will be uh, $4.83 with tax. Now, he thought to himself, that sounds high. In his own brain, he did the calculation. That would be a 12% tax on my order. The tax rate in this city is 8%. He asked the young girl, and she said she didn't know. So he asked to speak to the manager. What is the tax rate in this city? 8%. You charge me 12%. You charge me 483. 8% would be 463. Well, she attributed it to computer error and gave him two dimes. And he wrote this. Ha! I thought to myself. Six years of engineering school has so heightened my mental, mathematical adeptness that I could do percentages in my head. And my superior intellect has foiled a feeble attempt by a drive through worker to overcharge me. I took the 20 cents she handed me, proud of my staggering genius, and smugly drove off without my food. 
So I think we would all argue and agree. A person can be very intelligent and not necessarily be wise. Just like someone can be very, very wise and not necessarily be very educated. And I don't say that to criticize education, but I am making a veiled criticism of academic snobbishness. Because we have all been blessed in our lives by people who didn't go to school a lot, but they are stunningly insightful about life. So if you're joining us, we're in the third week of a series titled Rooted. This beautiful picture behind me, you see the verdant, brilliant colors of the flowers above the ground. Below the ground, you see the root. Nobody takes a picture of the root. But without the root, there is no fruit. Colossians were written by Paul. He was a missionary and a church planter. And he didn't want people just to come to Christ. He wanted people to come to maturity in Christ. He wanted them to be rooted. And so we saw two weeks ago, we talked about being rooted in the gospel of Christ. And last week in the supremacy of Christ. What we want to do today is talk about being rooted in the wisdom of Christ. That Paul, as a missionary, wants lost people to get saved. And as a church planner, he wants saved people to get smart. So, We're starting in chapter 1, verse 24, reading through chapter 2, verse 8. And Paul writes, Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent for you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught it, overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Imagine you're asleep and you have a dream and the Lord speaks to you and says, I'm pleased with you. Ask me for anything you want. What would you do? That happened once. The name was Solomon, David's son. He's taken over the kingdom. He's young. He inaugurates his rule with this huge worship service, offering all these sacrifices to God and the Lord is pleased. And so that night in a dream, the Lord says, I'll give you anything you want. And Solomon said, I'm young and I must lead your people. I want wisdom. And God said, 
because you did not ask for fame, because you did not ask for wealth, because you did not ask for military power. I'm going to give you all that because I am so delighted that you asked for wisdom. In the ancient world, wisdom was highly valued. And one of the most esteemed careers you could have was to be a philosopher. And most philosophers in that day said the same thing. I have the secret to special wisdom. And this secret is only available to a very select few. Now, Paul completely challenged that idea about wisdom. What Paul said is that the wisdom of heaven is not hidden from you. It is hidden for you in Jesus. He said, here's the mystery. God has come to live inside you in the person of Jesus. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he said, in Christ who lives in you are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says, anybody who belongs to Jesus has access to the wisdom of God. But he gives a warning. In fact, he does it twice. He says, don't let anyone deceive you by fine sounding arguments. And then he says, don't let anyone take you captive with hollow and deceptive philosophy. Did you know there are over 40 warnings in the New Testament? Don't get deceived by the messed up thinking of the world. What keeps Christians immature is their reliance on the wisdom of the world to live their daily lives. You say, what is the wisdom of the world? Go back to Genesis 3. The serpent said to the woman, did God say you shouldn't eat that? You know why? He doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good and evil. And it says she saw the fruit and saw that it was good for gaining wisdom. What's going on? The great sin, the sin that is underneath all sin is this. Where do I find truth? Do I find it listening to God? Do I look up for truth or do I look in? The great lie is, and this is the Kool-Aid of this culture. You don't need to look anywhere for truth except in yourself. You be you. You find your own truth and don't let anyone say outside of you there's some moral absolute that should be true for you. And the Bible is full of people who chose that wisdom. Like Abraham, the start of the redemption story, God said to an old man and an old woman, I'm going to give you a son and through that son I'm going to start the redemption story. Well, he waited a long time and she never got pregnant. So Abraham said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sleep with a young maid. I'll get her pregnant. Perfect sense, according to the wisdom of the world. And it worked, but it didn't. It led to nothing but disaster. In one of his best known proverbs, Solomon said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Listen, church, this is the great challenge of every day of your life. Where are you going to look for truth? Who gets to decide what is good and evil? Are you going to look to God who now lives in you, in Christ? Or are you going to look to the world? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, when I'm among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten. Notice he connected maturity 
to the wisdom of God. A mature person has the capacity to discern between God's wisdom and the wisdom of the world. Now, let's be real clear. I'm not talking about who's saved and who isn't saved. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about maturity. Every follower of Jesus has been rescued from the dominion of darkness, brought into the kingdom of light because of the death of Jesus on the cross. All disciples are washed. Rooted disciples are wise. What we're talking about is are you growing in spiritual maturity because you lean on the wisdom of Christ for your daily choices. You see, rooted disciples look at and live in the world around them through the lens of the wisdom of the Christ that is in them. They don't consider something to be true just because it's trending. But they're intentional about letting Jesus decide what is good. So I'll say it again. I'm not talking today if you're a Christian about whether you're saved. I'm talking about whether you're smart. Ephesians 5. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. The church should be full of wise guys and wise girls. So how do we do this? Here's the three big ideas. And the first is so important. Decide that Jesus is smart. You say, duh, wait a second. As we'll see in a moment, I don't think we realize how often we think that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. And think about it. Can you really surrender your life to anyone if you don't think they know what they're talking about? To a coach, to a teacher, to a boss, to a mate, to a parent? Can you submit your life to anyone if you don't think they have a clue? See, the biblical witness is that Jesus knows his stuff. It says as a child, he was filled with wisdom. It says he'd go to a synagogue and the people would say, where did this man get this wisdom? It says right now in Revelation 5, around the throne, the throng is worshiping the lamb and applauding his wisdom. See, discipleship requires admitting, Jesus, you're smarter than I am. You're the teacher. I'm the learner. So I think the greatest book on discipleship in my lifetime was written by a man named Dallas Willard called The Divine Conspiracy. I'm going to read a passage I read over 20 years ago. It convicted me then. I still love it today. He says, our commitment to Jesus can stand on no other foundation than a recognition he's the one who knows the truth about our lives and our universe. Can we seriously imagine Jesus could be Lord if he were not smart? If he were divine, would he be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop to think about it, how could he be what we take him to be in all other respects and not be the best informed and most intelligent person of all, the smartest person who ever lived? The biblical vision of Jesus is one who made all created reality and kept it working, literally holding it all together. The first Christians thought he had within himself all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus knew how to transform the molecular structure of water to make it wine. 
That knowledge allowed him to take a few pieces of bread and some little fish and feed thousands of people. He knew how to transform the tissues of human body from sickness to health and from death to life. He knew how to suspend gravity, interrupt weather patterns, eliminate unfruitful trees without a saw or an ax. He only needed a word. Surely he must be amused at what Nobel Prizes are awarded for today. And one of the greatest testimonies to his intelligence is he knew how to enter physical death, actually die, and then live beyond death. All these things show Jesus' cognitive and practical mastery of every phase of reality, physical, moral, and spiritual. Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate before they would say, Jesus is smart. He's not just nice, he's brilliant. He is the smartest man who has ever lived. And it gives me great comfort to know that my Jesus is smart. To know that my Jesus never agonizes over decisions, never second guesses himself. That the one I worship never thinks to himself, did I do the right thing? It gives me comfort to know that the one I worship can never be fooled or outsmarted or duped by anybody. I take great joy in knowing that my Jesus, because he's so smart, would never tell me anything that would damage my soul. Now, he might say some things that are hard to hear. But ultimately, he would never tell me anything that isn't good for me. And so Paul said in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Meditate on, imbibe, just enrich your life with the word of Jesus. But what you plant, you have to water Here's the second big idea. That true wisdom is spirit-given and prayer-driven. Now, spiritual wisdom always involves a knowledge of the Scriptures. I don't know anybody I regard as spiritually wise that is ignorant of the Bible. But I also know you can study the Bible, and that doesn't necessarily mean you will have wisdom. If it did, there would be no reason to pray. And the Bible is full of exhortations to ask God for wisdom. Like James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. Just like Solomon, you need to ask God for wisdom. So a while back, I got convicted about praying more for my church. How does a pastor pray for his church? So I said, I'm going to read the prayers of Paul for his churches. How did he pray for them? And here's what I noticed. I couldn't find one time that Paul prayed that Christians would be protected from persecution. I can't find one time that he prayed that they would be healthy and wealthy. But every time he prayed for wisdom. Like Colossians 1.9, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit Gives. Do you see that? Wisdom is prayer driven, but it is spirit given. 
Ephesians 1, 17. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Next week, we're going to have baptisms at every campus. It's going to be glorious. And that following week, I am going to pray by name for every single person that gets baptized. Three prayers. Number one, protect them from the evil one. Baptism does not drown the devil. He will come hard after every person that makes that decision. Number two, God puts somebody in their life who can mature and disciple them. And number three, give them wisdom. Help them learn to think like Christians. See, here's what happens. When you become a Christian, when you receive the Holy Spirit, when Christ, who is the hope of glory, starts to take up residence in you, you now have the capacity to have insight your unregenerate mind never could have because now you can receive revelation from the Holy Spirit. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, what we've received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we understand what God has freely given us. And this is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. Okay, I'm going to make a bold statement. I don't mean this in any kind of a ugly way, but there's a reason the church is full of so many immature Christians because we haven't taught people how to hear the Holy Spirit because we haven't taught people how to receive guidance daily from the spirit of Christ who lives in each one of us. Remember in Acts 6, the church is having tension over distribution of food to widows and the apostles say, we're going to stay committed to the ministry of word and prayer, but this is important. Let's solve this problem. Find some men among you who are full of the spirit and wisdom. There's a reason you listen to mature Christians. The reason you listen to them is because they are always listening to the Spirit of God. I have a pastor friend, and he told me a story about a lady in his church. And she had a hard life because her husband was legally blind and had other health issues. So she, she was his caregiver. And then she had a stroke and had her own health journey to make. When she was able to come back to church, he found her and said, I want you to know I've been praying for you. She said, what are you praying? Uh, well, I'm praying for your comfort and I'm praying for strength to handle your trial. She said, here's what I want you to pray. I want you to pray that God will give me the wisdom not to waste all of this. Now that's a mature request. That sister is rooted. We need to ask the spirit of Christ within us to reveal the wisdom of Christ to us. And when that happens, we will realize that Jesus' wisdom makes little sense to the world. Why does the Bible warn us so much about being deceived? Here's what God knows. We're susceptible to deception because the way of Jesus often seems like nonsense to the prevailing culture. And so we are tempted to accommodate 
how we live and what we think is right. So that the culture won't think at worst we're bigots and at best we're just fools. Here's what we need to remember. The strength of the early church was that the early church was willing to be weird. So a man, a scholar recently died, Dr. Larry Hurtado. He's an American, but he was the Dean of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And he was considered the expert theologian on the first 300 years of the church because he was obsessed with this question. How did it happen? How did a bunch of poor, uneducated Galilean nobodies dedicated to a crucified peasant launch a movement that conquered the most powerful empire the world had ever seen? And here's what he concluded. Not by aligning their views to gain power from the empire, but by standing out in sharp, distinct contrast to the empire. And he said, the early Christians had five stances that seemed absolutely foolish to the world. Stance number one, their commitment to ethnic diversity. The world never seen this. The ancient world was as bigoted and prejudiced as people are today. And here's this group of people that are intentional about practicing ethnic unity. It was weird. Weird number two, Their commitment to reach out to people on the margins, especially the poor, and their expectation, if you had much, you are obligated to share with people that have little. Do you understand the people that champion justice today have no idea that that is a Christian concept? Nobody in the ancient world thought haves should help the have-nots. That was foolish. Weird number three. The first Christians were staunch in their active resistance to infanticide and abortion. They opposed a culture that said, if children are inconvenient, you need to dispose of them. Weird number four, the early Christians were resolute in their vision of marriage and sexuality as between one man and one woman for life. In a culture that said sexual expression shouldn't be limited by anything. Anything goes anytime, anywhere with anybody. And weird number five, the earliest Christians were aggressively non-violent. They just wouldn't fight anybody. Okay, I'm going to take a two-minute detour. In the last five years, the single thing I have been criticized for the most is my refusal to be overtly political in my preaching. Now, I think I'm a good citizen. I love my country. I pray for my leaders and I vote. But I refuse to give blind allegiance to any secular power or platform. As a Christian, my job is to affirm what I can affirm and to critique what must be critiqued according to the wisdom of Jesus. Think about these five things the early Christians stood for. Where do they fit in current politics? People that are progressive love ethnic and economic diversity, but they want nothing to do with abortion stances or sanctity of marriage. 
people that affirm opposition to abortion and sanctity of marriage, they are stunningly silent about the need for justice. And nobody knows what to do with nonviolence. And I would argue the best thing Christians could do for our country is love it, pray for our leaders, and let all platforms and parties know when we can affirm you, you will, but you get outside the wisdom of Jesus, we will let you know. But how can we do that at a national level if we're not doing it at a personal level? You see, a lot of us live day to day like Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Immature Christians act like Jesus knows a whole lot about how to get to heaven, but not very much about how to live on earth. He keeps saying things that are just nonsense. Like, if somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn and let them slap the other one. If you got something and somebody asked for it, give it to them and don't ask for it back. If somebody curses you, give them a blessing back. Do you want to be great? Figure out how you can be least and serve the people most. And if somebody hurts you, forgive them 70 times, seven times. Jesus, are you crazy? You live like that and you will get manipulated and exploited by this world. And maybe most countercultural of all, Jesus said, do you want to save your life? Then you need to lose it. Jesus is asking us to embrace the wisdom of the cross. The wisdom that says real power is by loving and serving selflessly. And that's why Paul would say, I rejoice when I suffer for you. What? What kind of wisdom is that? He said, I rejoice when I suffer for you because I'm making up what's lacking in the afflictions of Jesus. Now, he's not saying that anything Jesus did on the cross is lacking. The work of dying and forgiving your sins is completely finished. The work of letting people know what Jesus did is not finished. And when you live by, and when you embrace, and when you preach the gospel, you will pay a price. A lot of you are. People in our church that give up their time to serve Asylum seekers and fourth graders as mentors and give up their time and vacation to go on camp with needy kids? What kind of wisdom is that? People who are stunningly generous in our church, who tithe to their church and then go above and beyond to support missionaries and church plants. No financial planner thinks that's smart. People in our church, especially young single people, who will not compromise their sexual purity and not sleep around because they're not married. In a culture that says, you are a fool to live that way. A while back, I got an email from someone I have never met and don't even know. And for two pages, they just blasted me and almost every 
thing they said was not true. And I got mad. My flesh got angry. And I typed a response. And I'm just going to tell you, it was brilliant. (laughs) I intellectually decapitated my critic. And I was about to hit sin. And then the Holy Spirit, remember Jesus lives inside me? The Holy Spirit said, is that what Jesus said to do? No. (laughs) Jesus said, bless those who curse you. So I hit delete. I typed a shorter response. I did not lie, but I did find a way with integrity to give a blessing to my critic. Now, this is where I'm supposed to say, so he wrote back and repented and said, oh, I'm so sorry. No, he didn't. But I was free from the burden and the anger I would have carried with me if I had kept a fight going. And I was again reminded, Jesus is just so smart. The wisdom of the cross Paul put it like this, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, those Jews are offended and Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach a crucified Christ. We preach that real power comes from dying to self and loving people that don't deserve to be loved. And we believe this is the wisdom of God. And listen, if you can't say that with certainty, you will never reach maturity. All disciples believe in Jesus. Rooted disciples believe Jesus. They don't just look to Jesus to get saved. They look to Jesus to get smart. Heard a college young man who came to Christ, went back to his dorm. Immediately his college peers began to mock him for the behaviors he would no longer participate in and for the things he began to believe. They said, you've been brainwashed. He replied, Everybody's brainwashed. I've just chosen who will wash my brain. (laughs) So every day, you get to choose who will wash my brain. Who will tell me what is right and good and true. And my charge is to go deep into the wisdom of Jesus. It's the smartest thing you will ever do. And so God, please take this truth and plant it deep within us. Thank you for the joy 
in awe of knowing every single one of us in Christ has access to divine wisdom. Every single one of us can be led by the Spirit of God. And so God, help us then to walk in, to step in, to model a completely different kind of wisdom. Help us to be willing to be fools in the eyes of the world if we're wise in the eyes of Jesus. Because someday he's going to come back and every knee's going to bow and we're all going to acknowledge Jesus knew what he was talking about. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.